If you or your kiddo has a food allergy, then chances are you have talked with your allergist about what's called a food challenge, which is actually how the diagnosis of food allergy can be made, not blood testing and not skin testing. So today on the podcast, I'm so excited to have Dr. Samantha Knox from Gunderson in Wisconsin come and talk about her amazing research on the safety of ingestion challenges. Let's dive in. Welcome to Food Allergy and Your Kiddo with Dr. Alice Hoyt, the podcast about demystifying food allergies, diminishing allergy anxiety, and taking back control. Let's navigate this challenge together with evidence-based information, scientific research, and tried and proven practices. And now, here's your host, board-certified allergist and immunologist specializing in food allergy, Dr. Alice Hoyt. Dr. Knox, welcome to the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great oh, to be it's here. An, <laughs> an absolute pleasure. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast um, and really excited to dive into this article that you wrote entitled Use of Emergency Backup Resources During Open Food Challenges at a Pediatric Tertiary Care Center. So kind of a mouthful, but I think the title, it really sums up what the article is about. But tell me what sort of prompted you to write this article? Yeah, so there were a couple of things. Um, This article was written during fellowship. So of course, I had a mentor that was working with me. And we both came together with different ideas and kind of um, just merged into this one project. I had actually been doing a different project and had presented a poster at one of the national conferences regarding some of the baked egg and baked milk challenges. And I had a few people come through, uh, various physicians and advanced practice practitioners um, who said, you know, they were just uncomfortable doing certain challenges. So they weren't offering them as much. And then there came out um, in the past decade, there have been two different survey studies of allergists indicating that. Um, you know, up to two thirds of allergists perform five or less food challenges per month, so maybe one a week um, or so. And so when I, I thought about this and was discussing this with one of my mentors, he had mentioned that um, also in that survey, that there was concern for about 10, 11% of allergists were concerned about not having a, a nearby ER or um, hospital attached to their office. Um, as a you know barrier to doing food challenges. So we came up with, hey, we do a lot of food challenges here. We have had some reactions. Let's see how many actually would need that so that we can talk about um, anaphylaxis preparedness and um, you know how this really how uh, bad the reactions could be and what how we really treat them. So uh, we decided to take a look back at all of our challenges over the prior few years and um, really delve into the reaction part of it. That's awesome. Let's pause here for a second and and camp on a food challenge. Tell our listeners, what is a food challenge and um, how do you present food challenges or doing a food challenge with your patients? Yeah. So food challenges are the gold standard for being able to diagnose a food allergy or, you know, rule out, you know, rule out a food allergy. So they're still a very important part of our diagnostic ability. Um, blood testing, skin testing are very important and they give us more information and help guide us. But the food challenge really is the way that we're going to decide 
are they allergic or not, depending upon the history and their testing. Um, not everybody needs to do a food challenge. Not everybody should do a food challenge. But what I propose to patients who I feel um, could go through with a food challenge is that it is a way for us to know do you have a food allergy or not? Because that's a big distinction. To have a food allergy or not means there's strict avoidance. There's concern for a reaction. There's the need for epinephrine for you to carry, um, for you to read labels very closely, for you to tell people at restaurants that you have an allergy and make sure that there's no cross contact. That's a big lifestyle change. And so um, doing the food challenge can help improve quality of life regardless of the outcome. So mm -hmm. what I propose for people is that a food challenge is a way for us to have more information for us to know that, yes, we do need to avoid this or no, we do not. And what it entails is um, planning to be there for a few hours. You come on a day when you're very well, um, no recent sick symptoms, um, no new rashes, things like that. So we want you to be at complete baseline because illnesses um, or even significant allergy symptoms, if it's during a pollen season or um, you know, something that like that, those can lower the threshold for reaction. So we want to make sure you're well, you're off of antihistamines, um, and you're willing to do this, especially for the kids who know what's going on and have been avoiding something because there is some anxiety surrounding it. So we do a lot of discussion about what the day is going to be like and give them some time to think about it and prepare themselves. So they're given that they bring in the food or sometimes we have it, you know, they're in the office. So depending on what it is, and they eat um, anywhere from three to six doses, depending on how, you know, the all everybody's a little bit different in terms of how they conduct them. But typically you start with a very tiny dose and you either double it or it's, um, you know, triple it, something like that, uh, every 15 to 20 minutes for the to um, get to a cumulative dose for their age, you know, a serving size for their age. And then if they react, start reacting during the dosing. We stop, we assess, and we decide, do we need to treat or are we monitoring? If they get through the entire um, the entire challenge and they are doing well, then we watch them for um, about two hours thereafter because for a typical clinical allergy in the sense of allergic antibody-mediated, so Ig-mediated hypersensitivity, it can occur, the symptoms can occur up to two hours after the last ingestion. Um, and so the day is pretty much hanging out for a few hours, keeping yourself occupied, having some other snacks there that are safe um, and just uh, making sure that they are, you know, occupied, especially for the younger kids, um, that there's there's different toys or games to play, um, things to read, drawings, stuff like that. So some of the pearls that I heard you say are that the reason to do the food challenge is to confirm that someone has a food allergy or to rule out the food allergy. And this is something that we talk about on the podcast all the time, that blood testing and skin testing are very important in anticipating a diagnosis, in helping um, an allergist uh, risk stratify whether or not we think a diagnosis is present. But it's not really until somebody's immune system itself has said, yes, I'm allergic or no, I am not allergic. And the way we do that is with an ingestion challenge. And you mentioned it's not for everybody. And one of the reasons it might not be for everybody is because the reaction the parent is describing upon the kiddo having ingested peanut two weeks ago is quite consistent with an allergic reaction. Um, and so in that case, 
just doing skin testing and or blood work could certainly help guide whether or not the kiddo has a food allergy. And then from there, you can go to is avoidance our next step or is avoidance plus some form of immunotherapy potentially the next step for this family. The other things that you said, um, did you want to add to that? Hi there, this is Alexis from the Hoyt Institute of Food Allergy. Did you know that the Institute is the official sponsor of the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast? And did you also know that you are now able to connect with Dr. Hoyt directly? That's right. We are now offering food allergy office hours for parents. These one-on-one virtual sessions are available for parents all across the country. It's an educational session, not an office visit, where you can ask all of your food allergy questions and finally get answers. It's as comfortable as having a cup of coffee with your bestie. Simply click the link in the show notes to schedule and mention this ad. We are so, so excited to connect with parents across the globe with this new service. Okay, now back to Pam and Dr. Hoyt. No, I, I think the, the big distinction there is, and for all of our listeners, um, one thing that I think was a, a big deal when I was in residency and learning about allergy was the difference between sensitization and a clinical allergy. So sensitization means that you've developed some allergic antibody to the food um, or, you know, other allergen. But in this case, we're talking about food. So you may have a positive peanut skin or blood test, um, but it's really about what happens when you eat it. So if there's no clinical history of having eaten it, but you have positive testing, you have to look at the level of that testing and some other factors in terms of what your risk factors are for food allergy. But it's really about what has happened when you ingest it, because there are plenty of people out there that have positive blood or skin testing to a food, but they're ingesting it and tolerating it. And so that's the difference. Right. Oh, that's exactly right. And for our doctor moms listening out there, um, this is why the concept of ordering food allergy panels has really gone by the wayside by those who really study and practice food allergy, it's it's because you can have positive testing and not be allergic. And I'll tell you, I've had many families come in who, you know, somebody with very good intentions, um, a, a girl was having spontaneous urticaria, just random hives. And with very good intentions, the pediatrician ordered a lot of food allergy, I'm doing air quotes, but food allergy testing or IgE testing, blood testing to different foods. And most of the things were positive. And the reason that of of these, you know, 20 to 25 food-specific IgE tests, why IgE to carrot was positive and IgE to um, wheat and all of these different things were positive were actually because she had eczema. And when people have eczema, that makes them more likely to have sensitization. Are they more likely to have food allergy? Yes. But they're also more likely to have sensitization that is not clinically relevant regarding having food allergy, meaning they're actually able to tolerate the food, even though they have all these positive tests. Um, And so it can create a lot of anxiety in families that are already having anxiety because ultimately somebody's doing the testing for a reason. Something is prompting testing for a reason. There is some sort of symptom. There is some sort of concern. And so that's why when I do talk with pediatricians, we're always talking about 
if we're going to order a test, what are we going to do? What, how is that going to change our management or, or what are we really thinking? Um, I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole on that, but I definitely wanted to hone in because we talk about that on the podcast so much, the importance of um, when you're doing skin or blood testing, what the outcome will, um, how that will inform the next step of shared medical decision-making. Um, and then you also talked about, and then we'll get into the article. It's such a good article. You also talked about um, what's going to happen with an ingestion challenge or an oral food challenge in OFC, which is how it's referred to in the article. And I'm going to link to the article, which has free access right now, which is awesome. Um, but you can go to foodallergyandrakito.com and um, access the article. But you talked about you definitely, your kiddo needs to be feeling well and you're going to be there for a few hours because reactions can happen up to a few hours later. Um, they're not going to happen a day later. That's not consistent with an IgE or um, the classic type of anaphylactic food allergy that we talk about. I think you will get into some of the other types of food allergies just a little bit in that um, that you talk about in your paper. Um, but really, the kiddo is going to come in and slowly under supervision ingest increasing amounts of the food over a couple of hours until they get to an age-appropriate dose, meaning a dose that is um, what a regular serving size of peanuts is for a kid that age. Does all that sound about right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And the key is that you're being monitored very closely. You're not on your own. You're not sitting in the waiting room eating it. You're not sitting, you know, somewhere in the hospital, just kind of around. You're in a, you're in an office and you're constantly being monitored by the nurse and by the physician. So um, there's no lack of supervision with this by any means. And so now let's get into your article because one of the reasons you said that y'all y'all did this paper and you did this research was because physicians themselves, allergists themselves, ourselves, we're allergists, right? We're concerned about very regularly doing challenges because of the potential need of emergency um, department services. So let's go through how did you how did you how did you look at how safe is it to do food challenges? What what were some of the methods that that y'all used in, in this research? Yeah, so we we went back and we looked at all of our food challenges. Um, this was from uh, January of 2013 to December of 2018. Looked at all of our uh, kids, you know, patients under 21 years. Um, so there were a, a few young adults um, that were in there, but that was only just uh, maybe nine of the patients. Um, but we looked at it from a few different allergists doing it, multiple foods. And these were also multiple challenges um, for some, you know, some of the same patients too. Um, but we we looked at all of their data, what food they were being challenged to, um, how much they were given and at what point did they re, uh, did they react? And what type of reaction was this? And this was, when I say reaction, it was anything from subjective saying, my mouth itches, things that you can't see. My mouth itches, my, my tummy hurts, I feel itching somewhere, um, to objective things like hives and swelling and vomiting and low blood pressure. Um, and then, you know, what was the actual outcome? Because you can react during a challenge, meaning have some of those symptoms early on. Maybe there's some perioral hives um, or a contact reaction or a little bit of oral itching or stomach upset at the beginning, but they can go through the challenge. And this is up to the the physician um, or you know provider that is conducting the challenge 
but they can push through and still pass that. So we'll talk about some of that data where you'll see it won't correlate necessarily with number of uh, people who reacted and number who also were considered allergic. Um, and then we, I did exclude uh, patients who had suspected had a different type of food allergy, a non-IgE mediated food allergy called FPIs or food protein induced enterocolitis syndrome, which is more related to kind of a gut um, reaction where there's delayed uh, vomiting and dehydration that goes along with that. Um, we looked at then how many patients needed um, just monitoring and got no treatment. Some that got antihistamines and steroids and um, albuterol treatments for wheezing and then epinephrine too. So we focused on epinephrine because that's the the biggest thing that people want to know about is how often do they really need epinephrine? That means that they've had a more significant reaction, that they've had anaphylaxis. And um, then beyond that, how many needed more than one dose and how many ultimately just needed further supervision in an emergency department um, or, you know, then admission thereafter? Because that's the biggest thing. If we have high rates of of needing emergency backup, then, you know, we have to reassess, are we, are we challenging too much? Are we, what are we challenging to, do we need to kind of uh, restratify in a, in a different way? Um, and beyond that, then we kind of scored them based on some of the scoring systems that have been used in research projects and looking at what, um, you know, how, Based on how many hives they had, how significant their symptoms were, they all go based on a couple of different mm -hmm. um, standardized scoring systems. And um, so then from there, we also looked at what their pre-challenge pre um, IgEs were and their pre-challenge skin testing to see how that um, correlated, you know, whether there was higher IgE levels for those that had more severe reactions or um, larger skin prick testing, um, th things like that. This is something that um, we had Dr. Schroer on the podcast a few weeks ago, and we didn't get into it, but um, I know that he and I and you and I have had discussions, um, and we won't go too into it right now, but we've certainly had discussions about the um, the levels of IgE and how when patients see their, their blood test results, it always comes back with grade one, grade two, like all these different grades, and we always talk about that that does not necessarily matter. Nope. It's all different. All the foods are different we're finding and that it, you have to take into account the fact, do they have a lot of atopy? Are they have asthma, eczema, allergic rhinitis, other things that are going to elevate their total IgE? And so, um, you know, there have been, there are people that are, are studying whether a ratio um, in terms of their total IgE and then their food specific IgE, if that's better uh, for some patients, but really um, that's where, we have to take into account what was a reaction? Have they been exposed to it? And mm -hmm. then what does that blood level look like? What does that skin test look like? And how you know comfortable are we with doing the challenge? Because that's how we're ultimately going to know. And um, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're like, wow, they're talking about a lot of stuff that I haven't talked with my allergist about, or... I don't have an allergist, like this is the perfect time to make sure that you and your kiddo are plugged in with an allergist and that if you have any particular questions for your allergist, go ahead and write them down now. I know I have some tools on foodallergyandyourkiddo.com that can help you kind of get your thoughts together before you see the doctor. I know that's something that I personally like to do before I go see a doctor is make sure like 
I literally write down or have it in my phone. Like, what are my specific questions? Like, what do I want to walk out of there knowing for myself or, or for my daughter? Um, like, what are my specific questions? So that's super important. So if we're talking about something right now and you're like, wow, I've never heard any of this before. I didn't know that we could do a challenge. Then, um, you know, visit foodallergyeducator.com. We can get you some really cool tools to help you um, really sort out your thoughts and then ask your allergist because I guarantee you, your allergist um, wants you to be equipped with information to help make your life easier. So um, definitely visit foodallergyeducator.com. Let's keep going with this because Dr. Knox, you guys really, and, and listeners, like, check out this article. There is really, really good information in it. Um, and Dr. Knox, you guys really like divided up, like how many folks did their challenges to baked egg, baked milk, egg, fin fish, milk, peanut, sesame shelf. I mean, like I could just keep going on because you laid your data out very nicely. Um, for us who want to scrutinize it, um, but, but you laid it out so nicely so that we really could get a very clear picture of how comprehensive of a look you did at the patients with whom y'all have done ingestion challenges over the last, what was it, five years, 2013 to 2018? Yep. Um, and so what you talked a lot about the methods and, and, and how y'all did this, what really did you guys find? I mean, I think what y'all found overall from a very like 40,000 foot view is that ingestion challenges are a lot safer than I think anybody really, really recognized. So you were going in thinking, okay, you know, are we missing something regarding the safety here? And really, they're, they're generally very, very safe. What yes. say you, ma'am? <laughs> yes. Overall, I would I would agree with that. Um, they they are safe. Um, you do need to be with a well trained you know physician that's comfortable with treating anaphylaxis. And as part of as being an allergist, that we we are trained on anaphylaxis, and so we should be comfortable doing so. But you have to make sure that you have the the right resources in your office to be able to treat it. So epinephrine um, being the biggest thing. And then you can have antihistamines and steroids and all those other things. But epinephrine is is the big thing. And um, being able to recognize the signs. I think from our results, we looked at uh, just under 1300 um, open food challenges. And the, the key is that these were not blinded. So um, we knew what we were challenging to them to, and they knew what they were being challenged to. Let me pause you right there. Cause some people are probably listening. Like, why would you ever do a blinded challenge? And one of the reasons to do a blinded challenge is in the research setting. And so one of the nice things about this article was that this was done looking back at clinical data. It wasn't done looking back at research data per se. So you're basically doing some research on clinical data. Um, but that's a time that you would, it, when you're doing research, there are times that sometimes the patient is masked or blinded so that they don't know what they're getting. Um, and, and that can help sort of calm down per se, maybe the whole, my mouth is itching, but maybe not. Right. Because then you're like, Oh, is, is my mouth itching? I mean, at the end of the day, if the older you get, whether you're a, a young kiddo or it's especially teenagers, 
I mean, if you're coming in doing a challenge, it's because somebody thinks at some point you may have had an allergic reaction or somebody thinks that you're not allergic. And so you're going to be thinking about, am I having symptoms? Um, And so in research settings, they do oftentimes like to blind the patient or the subject in that setting. And sometimes they'll blind the physician, but this was not done in a research setting. This was done in a clinical setting. So that's why there was, there was no blinding in these. Yes. Thank you. Um, So, so um, the exact number is 1,269 challenges that we looked at, and these were among 812 unique patients. So some patients were challenged to multiple different foods, and it gets back to those kids who have multiple food allergies um, diagnosed based on sensitization. Uh, They had eczema, and they went through a bunch of different testing, and now they've been, they're trying to work back through those or, you know, working through the tree nuts, which is a whole nother talk too. Um, But the the median age, so kind of middle ground, was around five years old. Most of them were males, which kind of correlates with a lot of other studies with um, there being the majority kind of a two-thirds male, one-third female patients. Um, but, you know, 30, like a third of them had other ATP, like asthma and eczema and allergic rhinitis. Um, and then most were conducted you know, in patients who had a history of a reaction and a positive skin or blood test or both. Um, So just over 50% of them. Some of them, though, the key about this is that some were sensitized and never had a reaction to the food. So like we talked about before, they had a positive skin or blood testing, but they had no history of reaction to the food. So there were um, about just over um, a third of patients had such a history. And some Um, people might be listening, wondering, well, why was any testing ever done on somebody who never had a reaction? And that also gets back to the sort of the spectrum and the timeline that we have to remember with food allergy. The uptick in peanut allergy was really first noted in the mid-late 90s. And that's why then the recommendation came out of, oh, let's have young kids, um, babies, avoid potentially allergenic foods until their immune system is ready for it. There are my air quotes again. Because what we know is that that was the wrong advice and that was not based on what we call evidence-based medicine. There was not studies that show, or there were not studies that showed that um, kids should avoid foods to then be tolerant of them. Because what we do know now based on evidence, specifically learning early about peanut and other studies, is that early introduction of potentially allergenic foods, especially in children at risk of peanut allergy, does decrease the risk of somebody, of a kiddo developing a peanut allergy. So you can see just how much the world of food allergy has changed from the time like our college age patients were babies to where they are now. And so there were certainly times, and I still know of physicians today who will order testing thinking, oh, well, let me order this blood testing to determine whether or not someone's allergic. And that is not what blood testing does. It doesn't determine whether or not someone's allergic. It's these challenges that you were looking at, Dr. Knox, that is determining whether or not somebody has that diagnosis of food allergy. As we've said so many times on the podcast, it's the testing, the blood testing and skin testing that definitely helps informs, helps inform a clinician's decision-making and risk stratify a patient as to whether or not we think they're allergic. But those, those tests don't actually say, yes, you're allergic, 
or know you're not allergic. And that's why it's so important to see an allergist. And that's why it's so important that we as allergists do ingestion challenges. And that's why this paper is so important, Dr. Knox, is because it shows that although there are risks with ingestion challenges, don't get me wrong, there are risks. And some of these kiddos did get epi and there, there are risks with challenges. I, d- I don't want to, to, to act as if they're not because there, there are risks. And we do know a few years ago, a, a tragic, um, a, a challenge where a child passed away and that was awful. But for the most part, and, and looking at all of this data and what we do day to day, if we do go into the challenge with good information if we go into the challenge knowing that we're going to be watching the patient very closely and we are going to promptly administer epinephrine to stop that allergic reaction, that challenges based on all of this data are very safe. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, the when we looked at this out of the just under 1,300 challenges, um, you know, 60 four percent of them had no reaction. So two thirds of them had no reaction. They went on to say, hey, I can eat this food and you know, I don't have to I don't have to avoid it. So that's amazing. But there were there were That's amazing. So that means of those one thousand two hundred and sixty nine challenges, more than half of them were were negative challenges. They were able to welcome peanuts, egg, whatever it was into their diet, not have to worry about going out to dinner, not have to worry about the social issues of how am I going to tell little Johnny's best friend's mom about this tree nut allergy and, or he can have this, but not that like done in a morning. It It's done. And even, even so, um, so then if you're looking at, let's reference the um, table one, just the general demographics, you'll notice there's a discrepancy there. There's um, no reaction was the 64%, so 816 patients. But if you actually look at the challenge outcome, it was even more than that. It was three-fourths of patients, 960 or 75, 76% were considered non-allergic because, you know, you uh, patients can have what's considered a reaction, maybe that oral itching. Um, a little bit of stomach upset, those kind of things, maybe some hives around the mouth that are minor that self-resolve and you can get through the challenge. There are certain things and that that's where it comes in with the experienced provider mm-hmm. who's doing the challenge. Um, but it that even ticked it up more, another 10%. Um, so that's that's really amazing. And that's where this becomes kind of the art of of medicine in a way. And understanding that and the more you do them, the more you realize that the majority of patients will will do well with these, but there are definitely, like you said, there are those risks, and that's why we do this, and we do this in a very, um, very safe and monitored and slow manner. That's very mm-hmm. diligent, uh, with a very low threshold to stop and kind of reassess things and use epinephrine earlier rather than later. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But um, so overall, about twenty five percent of patients were considered allergic. Um, and we decided to use the term allergic versus non-allergic rather than pass and fail because um, a failed rea- a failed challenge kind of has a negative connotation. What we want mm-hmm. to say is, were they are allergic or they are not allergic? And 
um, then they don't feel like, oh, I did something wrong here. Because you will see that there are studies that improves the quality of life regardless of the outcome of the challenge because now they know, okay, I've seen what a reaction could be. We've treated it successfully and we can move on and we know we need to strictly avoid it um, rather than the unknown. Or, you know, it obviously improves the quality of life if they pass it and they can go on to add that food back to their diet. Mm -hmm. So important distinction. And that's why we decided to use that terminology, which I have continued to use, um, you know, overall in my day-to-day clinical life. Absolutely. And like what I'll, I'll tell parents too, like, it's not like you studied and failed something or you didn't study. And so you failed it. And so we never want, especially kiddos thinking, oh my gosh, I I failed this. Like, this is horrible. Like shame on me. Like, no, it has nothing to do with you, sweetie. You know what I mean? So, so I really like that y'all did that terminology. Um, and it's, it's really not surprising to me given we practice at the same place for a while. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like minds. Um, let's keep going. Cause I mean, this, this is amazing. Dive in now to, um, you talked about the methods, you talked about, you know, why you were doing this. You talked about your findings. What are your thoughts on all of this now? How has this impacted your practice? How do you, what conclusions do you make from your data? So out of all of them, I guess the the important part, the emergency use that we we had used was five out of 1,269 challenges. Five patients required some sort of backup. They had to go to the ER. Um, maybe they got directly admitted, but they needed some resource outside of what we could provide in in the office, whether that resource was just more time for monitoring or they needed additional, uh, you know, epinephrine or something like that. But most of these patients kind of turned around once they got to the ER. So what this indicates to me is that, yes, challenges are still something that we we should be doing in certain cases, um, taking into account what our office, you know, preparedness is. Do we have epinephrine on board? We should. We're doing allergy injections. You know, we're doing immunotherapy. We're doing other things. So we should already have that. Um, do we have the resources to be able to dedicate time to that? And I have in my clinical practice, I have dedicated some time um, overall where I do challenge days, where I, I dedicate my time to doing those challenges um, so that I can spend time with them discussing, you know, risk benefit beforehand, going and giving them the doses and watching them and talking with families, because there's a lot to be learned through the challenge over the course of, you know, hours of them being there and getting to know the families um, very well and getting to know the child and, um, you know, their overall con- concerns about the challenge and some of these little subjective things that might happen and some of the anxiety that happens with it. Um you can work through a lot of that when you have more time. And that is my luxury that I I have that time to do that because of the way I've structured things. And not everybody in clinical practice has that, but they all have kind of what they want to do and how they want to structure the challenges. This is just what I've decided to do mm-hmm. in my own practice right now while I'm able to do so. And um, what I can tell them is that I've looked at a lot of data. We've looked at a lot of challenges. I've seen a lot of reactions and I am fortunate to have done a lot of challenges and I'm, I'm thankful for my mentors um, who pushed us to, to be a part of the challenges and conduct them and work with them and get a lot of experience in that because there's a lot of allergies. You're talking about in your training. Yes. In my training. Yes. In my training to do those because they're, 
you know, as you look back and, and looking at some of the studies they've done in terms of the surveys of just the experience of allergists in their training, some don't get that kind of experience. And that's one thing that I hope that we work on is, is getting more and more experience. And certainly, hopefully we get some some more, uh, some better testing that maybe we don't have to do as many challenges. Um, that's a little bit more accurate. But still, um, having had that experience now, I'm I'm comfortable with doing so. And I'm able to offer challenges to um, a lot of people who have not really ever thought about that before. Um, and so I, I think it's, this just gives me more information on what I can tell experience because it's, it's hard with a retrospective, you know, looking at a chart review, these are, these can't necessarily be extrapolated to, you know, the general population because it's not a prospective, you know, going forward study that you control and blind and everything. But and it what just you mean goes- by that is when we're talking about evidence-based medicine and the quality of research, this was a right. retrospective chart review. This was looking back at, at um, clinical um, uh, encounters that had already been done. This is not um, sort of the next step up in like high quality research, which is a prospective study, which is looking more forward as as we go along specifically you've you've laid out different um different criteria you're looking at or even enrollment criteria so what i would say is this is excellent retrospective chart review and you've laid out your data beautifully but to your point the reason you can't really extrapolate out even more from it is because it's not that prospective or double blind placebo controlled study um is that sort of what you're getting at Yes. Yep. Absolutely. But it's still, it's information to say we've gone through, we've looked at a lot of different reactions. We've looked at, you know, the way our different physicians, um, you know, treated those reactions and managed the patients and overall among, you know, several different physicians and, uh, you know, over, over a thousand challenges that, uh, you know, about 7% of the challenges required epinephrine. And that's the thing. We're challenging because we need to know or not, it's going to happen. Epinephrine will happen. <laughs> you know, the use of it does happen in challenges, uh, but we can't be afraid to use it. We can't be afraid to do a challenge because we might need to use epinephrine. Certainly if the the history and the testing and all the information you have pre-challenge indicates that they're high likely, highly likely to react, then we have to have that discussion that the challenge is probably unnecessary. But we have to know that we are comfortable doing so. We have the resources to treat it. We know what, if, if things are um, not turning around in terms of a, a reaction, we know what kind of access we, we have to um, emergency resources and how to get that help in a timely manner. And, you know, with our, with our resources at Cleveland Clinic, yes, um, some of them were done at the main campus where there is uh, an emergency department that is located there, but it's across campus from where we were doing the challenges. So it would be, you know, equivalent to, you know, a standalone clinic having an emergency department down the street. Um, But, and we had a pediatric ICU and we had a, we had emergency response teams and a code blue team. Um, So if you look at the, the last table, table three, that gave a little bit of summary of those patients that had um, needed, required a backup emergency resources there was one that says um, code blue. So PMET team was our, our pediatric emergency 
medical um, medical emergency response team. And they would come up and they would assess, they'd be able to put in IVs and they'd transport them down to the emergency department. Our code blue team inc- requires airway management. So anesthesia usually comes along. Um, and so if you need, if there's concern for, you know, airway management, then the um, the code team is called. Um, certainly code blue also has the indication that there might be cardiac arrest or something else where there, you know, CPR compressions are required. Um, but in this case of the um, patient number three, that was not required. So, And that um, wasn't required in any of your patients. No, and absolutely not. What what I think about when I look at this data is that this isn't data that says, oh, we did 1,269 challenges and needed epinephrine zero times. Because as as we in the biz sometimes say, if if you're only doing challenges that are negative, meaning the kiddo is not allergic, then chances are you're not doing enough challenges. Because there are times when you are going to identify kiddos who are not allergic anymore. Maybe they were before and they're not anymore. But if you don't do the challenge, you never know. And as long as you're approaching it with this type of care, caution, preparation, you know exactly, just like what you're laying out, like you know exactly what team you need to call in case of X reaction. So in that one particular case, there was some significant um, oral pharyngeal edema, and you wanted to make sure that you had the right docs available to to manage that. Um, but even in that case, that kiddo went to the ER for a few hours and then went home. So in all of the cases, of all the five cases of kids out of 1,269 challenges, of those five that had to have extra extra support, they were all fine. One got admitted to the ICU for observation, but was fine. Am I reading all this correctly? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, the one that was admitted, it was kind of based on age. The kid was under two um, and it was more of a precaution, but everyone else had more observation in the emergency department and um, ultimately went home. And so I think... And if kind of looking into more details, a lot of them didn't even require additional, you know, doses of epinephrine in the emergency department um, or additional support to continue managing a treatment. By the time, yes, they did require multiple doses of epinephrine, but usually after the second one, um, then they seem to be turning around. That being said, you know, after you've had two, you need to have a longer monitoring period. And so I do agree with, you know, if you don't have the resources to watch them for a long period of time and have somebody consistently monitoring them, then um, the emergency department or urgent cares, those are more, um, those are appropriate places for the patient to be transferred in those cases. But again, you know, this was very few and far between we had mm-hmm. the majority of patients, we'd still had 7% of the reactions or 7% of the challenges have a reaction that, uh, you know, was treated with epinephrine. And we were able to successfully reverse the anaphylactic reaction, um, the systemic, generalized systemic reaction, and uh, discharge them from the clinic without need for emergency backup resources. So, so let me so- stop you there for a second, because you're saying that 7% of reactions you gave at seven percent of seven percent of the challenges the total number of challenges seven percent of the challenges you gave epi and so 
what would prompt you? Because this is what I think a lot of our listeners are thinking now. It's like, well, I thought if you have anaphylaxis, then you very promptly give epinephrine. Is there a difference um, when you are doing a challenge and you're under the supervision of an allergist? So it, it depends upon the symptoms. You generally, and everybody's a little bit different, but generally the anaphylaxis guidelines when you're looking at um, when when would it be anaphylaxis? A lot of times it's related to having number a number of organ systems involved. So you have full body hives and you're repetitively vomiting. That would indicate that you've got the, the skin system and you've got the GI system going. And at that point, when there's two involved, epinephrine is going to be mm-hmm. the one thing that's going to reverse that. Mm-hmm. There are times where patients have uh, minor symptoms, maybe like one, one hive here or there, maybe it was a contact reaction. They have some oral itching in the mouth that's significant enough that they don't want to push further because there are times where you can just see that that resolves and go beyond that. And then the oral itching does not come back and you can complete the challenge. However, there are some times when it's pretty significant or they have some GI upset and they don't want to continue the challenge. And so you can use antihistamines, but watching very closely. The key is that if you are not giving, regardless when there's a reaction, you need to be monitored very closely because things can progress from Mm -hmm. there. Um, so you can start with things like antihistamines, um, and see antihistamines do take time though. They're oral. They take, you know, uh, sometimes 30 minutes to an hour to fully kick in and peak. Mm-hmm. So it's an antihistamines again, key antihistamines do not reverse anaphylaxis. Epinephrine is what does that, but there are mild systemic reactions that can occur that don't produce so many, um, you know, full, uh, full body reactions mm-hmm. that antihistamines may be able to take care of. But the key is that you are in the office being monitored very consistently by the nurses and doctors um, and right. with low threshold to then use the epinephrine should anything progress from there. That is such an important point to make because what I don't want anybody going away from this podcast thinking is that, oh, I can tell the school nurse that if little Johnny has some hives after he clearly eats a peanut containing cookie and he's allergic to peanut, then it's okay to just watch. We're not saying that. This is why it's so important to have that good relationship with your allergist and have a very clear anaphylaxis action plan and definitely have that written down, have copies for your babysitter, have copies for your school. Get that filled out every year sitting in the allergist office with your allergist so that you can talk through and ask these specific questions. But this is also something that I know when I'm doing food challenges with my patients, like I'll talk with them about why why our approach to treating an allergic reaction in the office during a food challenge is going to be a little bit different than what maybe your baseball coach would use when following your anaphylaxis action plan. Um, so those are just very, very important points to note. And and really getting back to Dr. Knox, just how how interesting this data is that y'all did so many challenges. And most of the time, the, the kiddos up to age 21 were ultimately deemed not allergic. And then even when they did have reactions, very, very rarely did they require anything further than another dose of epinephrine. And most of the kids only needed one dose if they needed that. Am I understanding the data correctly? Yeah, that that's correct. Um, most of them only needed one. And the the key, the goal with this study was, was um, really 
to show, you know, other allergists, hey, this is what we've done in a clinical um, setting. And yes, patients do have reactions um, and they sometimes can be pretty significant and severe, but we can still treat them in the office too and mm-hmm. show that you know, rarely do they need to go to the emergency department for reactions beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I, I don't want to discount the fact that we we had some severe reactions over mm-hmm. the course of those five years. Um, but epinephrine, when used early and often, uh, does does work, and mm-hmm. that we should not be afraid to use it. Um, we should not be afraid to do challenges if that's something that's you know indicated for for the the patient, and um, mm-hmm. that we just have to have those discussions about the risks and the benefits of it. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, have those low thresholds, understand how to treat it and work on, you know, getting some more experience with the challenges um, and talking with people that do a lot of challenges. It's just more about the education and comfort level with doing them. But um, that overall, in general, we do have a good drug that can reverse anaphylaxis in the vast majority of cases. Um, mm-hmm. And it's easily it's easily administered. Um, and it's really remarkable when, when you do see it work too. Um, mm-hmm. but again, that this is challenges are something that we still have as a, a tool and it's something to talk to your allergist about. Is my child eligible for a challenge? If they just had a reaction, um, in the, you know, the past few months and it was pretty significant and they have positive testing, positive blood, you know, blood or skin testing. No, unlikely it, we don't need to do that. Right. This is more in those cases where maybe they have outgrown it. It's been years since the reaction or they've never had it and they've just had positive testing. And that mm-hmm. testing kind of looks like, hey, you know what? We really like to do this. You have to have the, the motivated family, the motivated patient to want to do it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe maybe we've been avoiding it. We're not really sure. We want to start oral immunotherapy. Um, and there, that's a big difference. Do you, do you need to go through the whole oral immunotherapy? therapy process, or can you just be eating it regularly? Right. Um, so lots of stuff to discuss. And I, I would encourage all of the listeners to just take a look at your child's history, your own history um, of reaction. Have you had the food or not? Um, what kind of testing have you had? How long has it been? And, you know, just approach that subject mm-hmm. because it's something good to check in. That's why we see our, our patients who have food allergy it's kind of like, well, why do you see an allergist every year if it's just, you know, just to, um, you know, get your EpiPen refilled? But it's more about, okay, where are we at with this? Um, mm-hmm. What kind of new treatments do we have? We're recessing labs to see, are we trending down? Are we staying stable? Um, That's exactly and, right. And a, and a challenge, you know, are you interested in a challenge? I always ask my patients, are you interested in a challenge if we could do it? Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean we're going to, but that's a big thing is, are you interested in it? And then we go, what does that entail? What are the yeah. risks? What are the benefits? And some people are like, oh yes, I really would. I would really love to mm-hmm. to consider that option if we can, or no, I don't want to. And that's perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. But, um, having the option to challenge as part of our, you know, toolbox, uh, mm-hmm. as an allergist is really great to, to, to be able to offer that. Absolutely. And the shared decision making that you're describing of talking with your patients about it. And, and I don't want to minimize that if you're, if your kiddo has a challenge that there's a possibility that your kiddo is going to need epinephrine because nobody, nobody wants to see their child have an allergic reaction and nobody wants to see their child have to get an injection of epinephrine. Absolutely not. But what I do want to 
reassure our listeners is that here at this tertiary care center where they see a lot of food allergy, um, they did a lot of challenges and most of the kiddos were, were, were not allergic um, as deemed by the challenge. And there is just such benefit to, to being able to get rid of that diagnosis of food allergy. And as Dr. Knox mentioned, there is such benefit to even doing a food challenge that there is an improvement of of quality of life. And, um, and, and there, there is data that shows that. And so I do want to close with, with encouraging our listeners that if, if you've kind of been on the fence about a food challenge to talk with, talk with your allergist about it. Um, if your allergist says, you know, I, I don't really do a whole lot of them, um, then, you know, cause different allergists focus on different things. Allergy, we, when we train in allergy and immunology, some people do food allergies, some people do general allergies. So they do a lot of things. Some people just do immune deficiency. Um, but, but ask your allergist, sometimes allergists will do, um, sort of lower risk challenges, but then they'll work with another allergist elsewhere to do higher risk challenge. I know we do that in our practice sometimes. Um, and so talk with your allergist and say, Hey, you know, can we talk about a challenge? I know that I wasn't really excited about that a few years ago, but what do you think about maybe doing a challenge now? Or what would that look like for your, for my kiddo? What would that look like for my kiddo to, to do a challenge and then have a discussion just like Dr. Knox was talking about Dr. Knox. You know, I, I, I told you before you came on, we would talk for like 20 minutes and the timer says like 51 minutes. Um, (laughs) Because I mean, it's so wonderful to talk to you. It's so wonderful to to have you walk us through this really fantastic work that that you did, and sort of talk about like what your takeaways were about how like wow they're safe. We still need to be very um, diligent, of course. But one of the reasons we see such safety, I think, is because you are being so diligent. Um, but any final thoughts for our listeners today? I think um, we've had such good advances in food allergy. Um, We're working on other ways, um, but just, I think, staying educated yourself, making sure you have good resources from that. Talk to your allergist about um, good websites to go to and good podcasts to listen to. I would would highly (laughs) suggest this one. Um, And... And just make sure that you are asking those questions because you don't know what you don't know. And that I don't mm-hmm. like cliche sayings, but really in those cases, um, there's so much stuff that's advancing in terms of diagnostic abilities and treatments um, that having those questions and having those discussions in a good relationship with your allergist, especially you, your kids with food allergies and other allergic conditions. There's so many things that go along with that. Um and that's that's how you figure out you establish that relationship, and then maybe in a couple of years you are comfortable with that challenge or going through with the OIT or something like that. But um, it's so important to have good good information, um, good trusted resources, and a good trusting relationship with your allergist. I couldn't have said it better, Doctor Knox. Thank you so much for coming on the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast. You're welcome back anytime. You are so very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Wasn't she fantastic? I loved having her on the show and loved her talking about the amazing data that, I mean, she worked so hard to collect. And then what her data really showed was that food challenges, when done 
well can be very, very safe and just so important, so important to know whether or not your kiddo is actually allergic. Um, And again, there is benefit even in kiddos who have a positive challenge, meaning they do actually have food allergy. And there are going to be times that, that your allergist would recommend a challenge to you, even if it is a possibility that your kiddo is going to have a reaction. But Definitely look at this paper and and look at how many kiddos underwent challenges and how many were deemed to be not allergic after the challenge, which is which is just so fantastic. So I want to thank you for tuning into this episode. I know it was a longer episode, but I think it was just so good. So I didn't want to cut any of it because um, I wanted to share all this really important information with you, my listeners. And y'all, there is so much good information on foodallergyinyourkiddo.com. So definitely check it out. Sign up for my email list so that you will get information every Monday about the latest in food allergy and what's going on in the food allergy world. And of course, I am an allergist, but I am not your allergist. So talk with your allergist about what you learned today on this episode, what you're learning on on foodallergyinyourkiddo.com, but talk with your allergist, have that, that really good communication and get your questions answered. Thanks again for listening. God bless you and God bless your family. Thanks for listening to this episode of Food Allergy and Your Kiddo with food allergist, Dr. Alice Hoyt. For more information on navigating the world of food allergy, visit www.foodallergyandyourkiddo.com and follow Dr. Hoyt on Twitter at Dr. Alice Hoyt. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Let's take the anxiety and confusion out of food allergy.